welcome to Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing and Dialogue, we put comics into historical, theoretical, and educational contexts. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. I have three graphic novels out in addition to self-published works. I have a master's degree in art education. And I am a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Uh, my research focuses on trans embodiment and experience in comics, zines, and museum studies. Um, I also have a master's in English from UF, and I make self-published comics mostly. Awesome. Um, so today is an episode that uh, Remus is going to be uh, driving the car for. I was yeah. trying to think of a different metaphor than we've said before. <laughs> Normally we say take the wheel, but this time I just said you're driving the car. So drive this car. car. Great. <laughs> this, uh, so yeah, um, today I wanted to talk a little bit about queer theory um, and how um, I've written academics and critics use queer theory to analyze comics, but r- r- we can talk about it being not just academics later. But um, I wanted to talk about this because i i think i've i mean we've known i've always been like the big theory person right um that was sort of always my segment um yes before we did the segment change a few episodes ago if yes you just joining us yeah so i i'm a person who um finds theory to be like actually quite useful um not just in like my academic work because for better or for worse i am an academic but just as like a person in the world um and it's one of my favorite things to teach and in my experience teaching college students right i found that people often don't really understand how to use uh theoretical approaches in the humanities which is sort of like where queer theory lives right uh we're kind of more used and i'm super generalizing but we're kind of more used to like thinking about theory in the scientific sense right which is like a theory is an explanation for something in the natural world that isn't necessarily like proven as fact right um so usually uh i've found that like my students when they like try to do work with theory they think about it in this very like black and white like you either prove that it exists or you don't um Mm. Right. And but in the humanities and when I say the humanities, I mean, like the big umbrella of disciplines that includes like English, philosophy, um, those sorts of things. Um, And again, I'm like really generalizing here, but theoretical approaches are more like a framework that just gives someone a way of thinking about a text. Um, And then in this context, like a text can be anything, um, you know, a literal text like a book or a comic, but it could also be like a community, a body, an identity, a theater performance, uh, an archive architecture like anything really right anything that you're sort of like i am gonna analyze this and figure like figure something out about it or try to like understand it in some way Mm -hmm. um is a text um so when i say and so i i wanted to start like by saying that because like i think thinking about these this sort of thing in terms of like a framework in the sense that it's like it's not something you're trying to prove it's just like a certain way of like a certain set of like questions or a certain like way of thinking about something um that can help you sort of like approach a text as opposed to like a concrete thing can be like more helpful um and well i'm also thinking about it it's like i actually talk about this with my art students a lot where it's like um you know like the when we're looking at art and we're talking about 
the visual aspects of art, there will be words like balance or movement. And I have to keep saying it's not literally balance and it's not literally movement. Mm -hmm. It's just a different definition of the same word. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I almost think the word theory is just being used in two different ways. Oh, for sure. English thing, right? Yeah, it definitely. And I'm not. I don't know the history of the word theory or like why it gets applied to in, in certain disciplines, certain ways and, and others not. Um, yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. it is definitely. And, and uh, most people, because of uh, at least like nowadays, the way that like education is so like focused on like STEM. Is that fair to say, Kathy? I mean, I would say I actually was thinking your your perspective seems to be colored by the fact that you work at a university mm-hmm. because like in art school like the very first oh, class yeah. what we took was different theories in which you can view work like the feminist theory and oh the interesting theory and the, i yeah that was like that was like freshman year in my art school <laughs> my art school we didn't have that but that might be because it was such a tiny school that our like non-studio classes were sort of like slim choices Mm, um, yeah, this was like a required class yeah. for. That's actually um, really this cool. Is, this is Maryland Institute College of Art. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's fair. I, I yeah, UF I will say is very STEM heavy. So a lot of my students are. Like yeah, STEM I was kids. thinking your experience might be co- colored by that, which is cool. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure our readers also have our co- our listeners are coming from lots of different experiences. Yeah, yeah, so. for sure. But anyway, my point is just um, two different ways of thinking about the word theory that sometimes cause confusion when you're trying yeah, to like totally. get your head around them. Yeah, and I think it is helpful that it's like, this isn't a fact. None of this is a fact. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, there's like a metaphor that can be kind of problematic, but I think is useful. A lot of people say that like theory is like tools and some tools are better for some jobs, right? So I also wanted to frame this conversation with a quote from um, Bettina's Bettina Loves, We Want to Do More Than Survive, which is actually like a really phenomenal book about abolitionist teaching practices. Hmm. And she has a chapter on theory in there, and she writes that um, theory does not solve issues, only action and solidarity can do that, but theory gives you a language to fight. Theory is a practical guide to understanding injustice historically, the needs of people, and where collective power lives within the groups of people. Um, and I think that's really useful, at least for like the way that I approach theory, because I do. I, I'm not saying that like all theories are equal, or that like everyone doing queer theory is doing it this way or whatever. But like, I personally approach theory in this sense of like this is a practical way to sort of like understand how these systems work. Right. And like Mm -hmm. that gives you the opportunity to figure out what practical action you can actually take. Um, And also I like that she like is very clear that theory itself is not the thing that like how we talked about how like comics themselves are not activism. (laughs) Like theory itself is not activism, but it can be a useful, it is like a necessary component to actual activism work. Mm -hmm. Um, So queer theory specifically, um, I'm going to go ahead and move into this if we're ready. Yeah, we're ready. I'm just thinking, I I just kind of got lost in thinking about anarchism for a second, as you do. (laughs) As Um, you do, also an important uh, theory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just, I was just thinking about how anarchism is like, is like getting rid of everything and it doesn't acknowledge what already exists. And I was just thinking about Mm -hmm. how like, I was like, oh, so this is sort of a queer theory is sort of acknowledging what does exist and how to compete with that. Mm-hmm. But I was like, that isn't useful because we're just we aren't a leftist political podcast. Don't <laughs> don't come for me, anarcho-communists. <laughs> I don't 
don't know, man. This, I just work with people. <laughs> they, yeah, listen, we don't we don't have time to get into all of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know I didn't say it, so I. You know what? It didn't. I didn't say it, and Remus is ready to get started. And that was our introduction. Remus is going to get started with the content. <laughs> okay, um, let's so, go. So, um, again, moving into queer theory specifically, um, my idea is that I want to give like a super brief overview of queer theory. You know, like what is queer theory, and then just highlight some work using queer theory in comic studies, just to kind of give an idea of how it can be used. Mm. And again, um, I don't have that many examples because I didn't. I didn't want to like just summarize a bunch of different academic papers. Um, yeah. But I'm gonna. I can because this is a super brief overview. Uh, I can like note suggestions for further reading if folks are like cool. interested. Um. Yeah. Um. So first, right, we should actually probably start with what does the word queer even mean and how it's used. The context that most of us are probably familiar with is like queer is an umbrella term, right? For like. Uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, sometimes trans, although that can be obviously, like, um, not everyone uses it that way. Um, we might want to say, like, non-heterosexual identities. Um, is that, like, a fair summary, you think? I mean, I think it includes gender, not just sexuality. I do, too, to be clear. I just know that some other trans folks do not feel that way. I mean, I almost think that the word queer is an umbrella term, but some people just don't want to use it for themselves. Yeah, that's fair. I don't I don't think just because some people don't want to use it doesn't it doesn't mean it doesn't function. <laughs> right. In that manner. <laughs> no, totally, totally. I agree. Um so yeah, it's yeah, basically non heterosexual, non cisgender, non normative sexual identities. So historically the word queer has been used since the early twentieth century in connection with sexual practice. Um and I do actually want to quickly note that it also in the early twentieth century, like nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, um, may have carried a racialized meaning as well, based on works by Nella Larson and Jean Toomer, who were uh black writers in the era and who used it in their works to refer to the mixing of like black folk and white folk. Mm. Right. I, I that I think it's important because um queer sort of has like this history of being like used mostly by like uh people of color and like lower income working class people so um in the 1940s queer took on the more like pejorative meaning towards homosexuality that some of us are now more familiar with um yeah and and the pejorative meaning bad slur yes sorry thank you that's all right you are an academic and i'm just you know <laughs> no, i've just always been like this um <laughs> <laughs> so so i i also again the word sort of has this history that predates it being used specifically as a slur but then like in the 1940s that association sort of became more dominant as i mentioned queer uh sort of historically has a strong link to working class and non-white uh especially like gay and lesbians and other queer people um <laughs> who wanted uh to differentiate themselves from like white bourgeoisie mainstream gayness um so like the sort of like dominant mainstream gay rights movements of the 80s and 90s in particular and that's really how it started to get used in the 80s and 90s by like aids activists Mm. um so for example the group queer nation right which is very clearly differentiating itself from predecessors like other previous um lgbt activist groups um 
Um, for info on that era, uh, I actually highly recommend Sarah Shulman's documentary, United in Anger. Um, and Sarah Shulman's work in general, I think, is a really good, like, accessible to read entry point into a lot of, like, AIDS activism and sort of the politics of that time. So, um... This term, so this sort of, like, captures this divide in political strategies, right? So, like, there's this sort of this, like, branch of, like, more mainstream. And when I say mainstream, I mean in, literal, in the literal sense that it's more well-known, right? Like, it's, it's what's, like, on the news and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, of gay activism being very rights-based framework to try to, like, achieve protection or recognition by the state through, like, governmental protections, Whereas a lot of queer activism, you know, the whole point of queer activism at the time is more about critiquing the state and moving outside of the rights-based framework. Um, So more aligned with like radical, liberatory, what we might say leftist politics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. And, uh, you know, this is something that has been come to the surface a lot more when we talk about like, like, like uh, discourse surrounding Stonewall in the last few Mm -hmm. years during Pride events. Uh, pride is a riot um just like my understanding is that the gay rights movement had sort of a habit of leaving other identities behind in the interest of like things like gay marriage and things like that mm-hmm. um so like i've see so like from what you're saying it's like queer contains more solidarity just as a term yeah i mean that's definitely um sort of the premise of like 80s 90s queer activism is mm-hmm. that it was supposed to it, it's like meant to be more inclusive and like rec- more like led by um working class people of color and trans people and all that stuff mm-hmm. um but uh i mean i'll uh, i'm gonna quote an essay a little later on by kathy j cohen that uh kind of like examines that premise uh, she's a black lesbian scholar and she sort of examines that premise and whether or not it's actually true mm-hmm. but yeah that's at least like on paper <laughs> um supposed to be the big difference mm-hmm. too and again, all of this this sort of like shift in the word queer and how it's being used as a political identity is coming at the sort of like, not the, sort of the end of like the particular era of like AIDS activism that existed in the like 80s through the 90s. Um, not that like there's no more AIDS activism ever, but I'm trying to like get at this like very specific like mo- moment, right? Mm-hmm. And this is also, like, around the same time that queer, as a term, entered the academy. Um, so there's different reasons for that. Um, I, you know, um, a lot of it has to do specifically with Judith Butler and Eve Sedgwick. Um, so queer theory as a recognizable, like, theoretical approach that other people could point to and be like, hey, I am doing queer theory, um, is usually, like, sort of, like, considered to really originate with judith butler's work um and particularly like bodies that matter her book that came out i want to say in like 97 or 98 um and then eve sedgwick is sort of the other big like originator um and there's a couple things i want to call out here quickly one early queer theory is like really white really really white like Mm -hmm. uh judith uh, judith butler and eve sedgwick both white women right and um i don't want to get like too into the weeds but that's just something that's like worth noting especially since like again the premise of queer is supposed to be more inclusive um and there was also at the time happening like a lot of important like moves in like um women of color particularly doing like work in feminism and stuff but um the other thing i want to point out 
uh, is that Butler and Sedgwick are both queer. And like, and I'm saying that in the sense of like personal identity, right? Like their subject position is as queer people. Um, and I'm saying that because I do think there's sort of a common misconception, or at least I know that like I felt this way that like most queer theory is like just straight people writing about queer people, which isn't super true <laughs> for like all the rest of its flaws. Um, like there's definitely, I would say like, there's people that work in queer theory that maybe don't have the experience that um, would help them. But, um, and that's a little like side-eye academic uh, uh, shade, but most of the seminal queer theory is queer people like writing from their subject position. So I just think that's like important to like call out. Mm -hmm. So, and this is where we get into the fun. So, you know, you know how Kathy said in the beginning of the episode that, uh, uh there's sort of two definitions of theory and that can cause confusion i did say that yes <laughs> sorry I, I don't know i'm talking to our audience i guess suddenly and not, <laughs> not you <laughs> um anyway this is also this also kind of happens here uh where in queer theory and here i'm gonna quote uh siobhan b somerville um from an essay called queer um, queer theory uses the word queer to mean, quote, a critique of the tendency to organize political or theoretical questions around sexual orientation per se, which is to say not taking the categories of gay, lesbian, trans, gender, women, whatever, as natural and predetermined things, um, but rather as things that are constructed and maintained through different, like, societal structures. An example of this is, like, gender is, like, a really easy one to do at the top of the head, but, like, the idea, like, the idea of what makes a cisgender man, right? That is, like, a set of ideas that are enforced through, in some cases, literally law, right? Like, if you look at, like, cross-dressing laws and stuff, but also, like, little things, like, a teacher telling a boy that he can't paint his nails or like a parent not letting a boy have a pink thing or whatever. Right. Mm. Um, does that make sense? It's, yeah. it's the maintaining something um, through society. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, an example of this that I think a lot of folks are now familiar with is the idea of heteronormativity, which does come from queer theory. Right. Um, which is a concept that basically refers to the ways that like, institutions and our sort of cultural structures make heterosexuality seem like the normative privilege default um and this is done not only on like the individual level in the sense of like um oh as a like gay person people assume you're straight although that is part of heteronormativity um but like uh power structures right so like from the act, like I mentioned, the act of criminalization of queer behavior. So, like, there used there used to be cross dressing laws. I think there are probably still cross dressing laws somewhere in the United States, um, where like if you were out and you were wearing clothing that did not quote unquote match the like sex on your ID, you could be arrested. Um, to the ways that we structure again, sort of like. Um, education or just like the basic like premise of how like a life is supposed to go around the idea of heterosexual behavior so like the idea that you like you know you grow up you start having feelings for people of a different gender than you 
eventually you get married to that person, a person of a different gender, you have babies, blah, 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 the cycle repeats forever, right? That's sort of like a core cultural concept <laughs> that we're all sort of raised with. Um, even if things are like st starting to change now, it's still like culturally broadly across the US, that case, right? Mm. So basically, queer theory starts from the premise that sexual orientation and gender are not natural identities, right? These are things that are like the specific like labels, right? Words that we use are things that like are cr created through our various cultural discourses and then tries to destabilize those ideas by analyzing how identities are formed. Um, so, for example, through books and films, right? Because like you can like watch here's a good example for me like i love watching the bachelor because to me it is like a handbook on heterosexuality like they really like i feel like i'm in a museum watching like how heterosexuals how heterosexuality is supposed to be performed like through a glass wall right um so that would be like a queer theory sort of angle to that or but you can also look at like different community formations actions identity stuff like that too yeah so you had paused for a question for me you wrote that in the notes and i wrote like mm -hmm. uh sort of a question where i sort of was hung up on the idea of saying that these identities of gay and lesbian as are not natural <laughs> i got <laughs> hung up on that because yeah. um so i had written are you saying queer theory already starts at a deficit point of view basically saying that none of this is natural because i was like that seems like a questionable <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. right because like we don't want to be like this is uh like being gay is a choice right that kind right of, yeah uh, dog whistle yeah and i actually really like this question because um if you'll excuse me briefly digressing it reminded me a lot of um uh, a couple like a year ago i taught a class on art and activism in the hiv aids like the like what we normally consider the like crisis years in the u.s which is roughly like 81 through like 98 mm. um and we started actually with that essay by somerville and i had a girl because uh, because i obviously like wasn't assuming that all of my students were familiar with or comfortable with the idea of queer right mm. um and i wanted to make sure that we were like all on the same page before we talked about it all semester mm. <laughs> um and I had a girl in that class, a very bright girl, liked her a lot, uh, who was queer. And um, she, when we were talking about this idea that these identities are socially constructed, she sort of had a negative reaction to that um, because she came from a religious background. And so the idea that um, you were born that way was like a really important tool for her, right, to sort of like defend against um, those dog whistles that you were talking about, mm -hmm. Kathy. Um, and that, I think, is and i bring that up to say that like i think that's like a pretty like reasonable reaction to have to this idea but um there's a sort of a difference between the behavior and how we categorize the behavior right so like and i'm not gonna say like no one in queer theory believes this because people believe all sorts of things but generally like what we're looking at is not the the behavior that you have right which can be very natural born with it whatever right like people have preferences people from a very young age we've talked about this have like a very clear understanding of their gender yeah um people from a very young age often have a very clear understanding of their sexuality right mm -hmm. um 
and that is just human beings, right? That's just like human, right? There's nothing unnatural about that. What queer theory is interested in destabilizing is the way that those behaviors get categorized. Um, So like the idea that um, this set of behaviors makes you gay and that gay then becomes a stable identity that like that multiple people can sort of like align themselves with and say like hey I am a gay person and that lets them like find other gay people or whatever right um that is culturally constructed literally right that is how identity works <laughs> um and, and again when I say identity I'm not talking again there's sort of this like divide between like identity as in like I guess how you feel personally about your behaviors and identity in the sense of like the ways that these categories are used culturally because they're very culturally specific and dependent, right? Like um, the way that we think about gender in the U.S. for the most part in the dominant mainstream, right, is based on Western European ideas of gender. But if you move outside of that framework, there's a lot of other different ideas about gender that other cultures have, right? Um, and, and, And other categories that they use. Right. So that's sort of what queer theory is getting at is that these like and mind you, like queer theory sort of comes from and is largely used in the context of sort of like the Western European U.S., Canada and, you know, these sort of like Western or um, imperial powers. Right. That's a specific historical context that they're interested in analyzing. Um or at least, like, most of what I do is in that framework, because I'm, like, an Americanist, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but um, does that make sense? Am I, like, kind of, like, unpacking a little bit more? Um, so I almost think I almost think the hang-up is more like the construction, talking about the construction for queer people, mm-hmm. queer identities, but it's also constructed for normative identities. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. super is. And I I think I, I do sort of talk about this a little bit when I when I talk about reparative reading. I'm gonna talk about reparative reading a little bit later on. Um, but like a lot of especially early queer theory, so stuff in the nineties, right, was really focused specifically on like those identity categories of gay and lesbian, and then later a little bit about gender. Um mm-hmm. but you can absolutely come at it from the angle of like, okay. All of these are constructed, and a lot of people do come in at the angle of like, okay, all of these are yeah. constructed, right? Yeah, I would say that's pretty true. Yeah, yeah. So like, one of my favorite things to write about is like masculinity, and I'm just I'm really interested in like how cis masculinity is constructed, right? But I can I can use queer theory to talk about that because that gives me the tools. Um. So yeah, definitely. Like, right? No, it's just it's as if we've always talked about it. Liberation is helpful for everyone. So like, if you're talking mm-hmm. about cisgender, you're talking about transgender. It's, it's it'll yeah exactly yeah super yeah but like i said i think that's like a really useful um question so thank you you're welcome i don't i just want to make sure mm-hmm. no one is at a deficit no no one is at a- <laughs> <laughs> well i think maybe we're all at deficits because of culture but uh <laughs> you know yeah. um anyway so that i said where queer think this is already a little dense but where queer theory can get sort of like denser let's say is that because queer, the word, is often used in queer theory as a critique, to talk about like a critique of normative ideas or behaviors in general, right? It mm-hmm. can get at times um, really abstract or like pulled away from 
our, let's say, more materially based understanding of queer as an umbrella term for like LGBTQ identities. And obviously not all queer theory is good theory. Not all arguments are the same. I, you should always be like sort of critical about anything you read, especially academic texts. Uh, (laughs) And you can always like (laughs) critique how someone is using the tools that they're trying to use. Um, Like I have definitely read some queer theory pieces where I've been like, what are you talking about, my dude? Um, But I do think there can be something really valuable in taking a more expansive understanding of the word queer and what it can mean. Um, And to talk about, I'm going to like briefly touch on Kathy J. Cohen's really important essay, um, Punks, Bull Daggers, and Welfare Queens, The Radical Potential of Queer Politics from 1997. So like I mentioned in this essay, she's basically questioning the premise of queer politics as being more radically inclusive than gay rights activism, which historically is very white. So to quote her, I envision a politics where one's relation to power and not some homogenized identity is privileged in determining one's political comrades. I'm talking about a politics where the non-normative and marginal position of punks, bulldaggers, and welfare queens, for uh, for example, is the basis for progressive transformative coalitional work. Thus, if there is any truly radical power to be found in the idea of queerness, it would be seem to be located in its abolition to create a space in opposition to dominant norms. So he, in this essay, she's sort of like pulling on both how like queer theory is using queer and also how like queer activists are using queer. And again, those two things are not as distinct as I think we often think they are. You know, there's there's like a lot of overlap often between like people in the academy who are doing very political work and activists like often they are friends often they are the same people you know and what she's kind of saying is that we can use queer to get at like what is positioned as non-normative right like what uh gender and like what gendered and sexual behavior is positioned as non-normative and it can offer us a way to as Bettina Love suggests map out an understanding of the shared needs of these non-normative identity formations and then how to like actually do work to transform those subject positions so that they aren't um oppressed or facing injustice anymore if that makes sense yeah i mean i i wrote uh i'm i'm gonna ask you to summarize again because i wrote um how is this a useful point of view not just for scholars and academics but you know yeah. for most of our listeners who are just consumers of yeah media i mean world, i think right? what cohen is saying here which is like really important is to like not get stuck in the position that like uh queer politics ends at lgbtq rights or lgbtq transformational power Mm. or whatever right like you can't do Mm -hmm. abolition which we have talked about in the show without broad coalition across multiple identity right and what she's suggesting is to sort of borrow or yeah to sort of like almost borrow the way that like queer theory does queer which also is used by some activists at the time in this way to think about like, okay, you know, gay, lesbian, trans, all of those people are queer, but what if also welfare queens, which is a term that refers to like black mothers who are on welfare, right? So it's kind of a pejorative term um, that she's sort of like reclaiming in this context. 
you know, they are all uh, black women who are single mothers who are on welfare are also criminalized and treated as sexually deviant in the same way that gay people are. So what if we use queer as a term to sort of capture those shared needs, right, of being like marginalized and oppressed based on these behaviors that are categorized as deviant, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important because I think it's really I think this is a really important thing especially for to be frank white queer people right because I think it's very easy as a white queer person to not pay it to like get really sort of like mired in the idea of like what counts as like queer rights or like queer transformation or whatever and be very narrow about those parameters, right? When we should be really expansive about those parameters because we need broad-based coalitions. And when you actually look at, okay, what behavior is getting categorized as deviant and thus leading to people being put in jail or leading to people being kept poor or like any of these different like tools of power that the state has, right, um, to oppress people, it's not just gay and trans and lesbian, right? It's like a whole bunch of different people, regardless of whether they are literally like identify as heterosexual or not, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about how, um, you know, the term curiarchy, where it's sort of a, it was like a feminist, uh, just like thinking about how we need these terms to like, uh, like the uh mm-hmm. homophobia classism xenophobia all that stuff ageism we all need these things so we can talk about the specific needs of each specific yeah uh category but then but then we also need terms to be like well we can't categorize people so much that they are uh removed from each other <laughs> right exactly so now <laughs> now comics. let's talk about comic books <laughs> Yeah, so this is going to be a little, this is going to feel a little bit like a swerve. But like I mentioned, um, queer theory, like all theories in the humanity sense, is a particular framework that shines a spotlight on certain areas for us to examine. Um, so one approach, right, uh, which is, is to sort of like read a comic or comics and see what you can sort of, or what we can sort of learn about identity from how those comics are made or distributed, like what's on the page, um, that kind of stuff. Another approach is to consider the formal qualities of the comic. So like how images and texts are literally put together on the page and how those relate to queer aesthetic choices or queer communication styles, right? So there's multiple ways to sort of like analyze queerness in a comic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit uh, from an essay also titled Queer um, by Ramsey Fawaz and Derek Scott, who are two of the larger sort of like queer theorist names in comics. I do feel like this quote does like a little bit of injustice to like their very thoughtful body of work, but it does very quickly sort of get at some <laughs> different approaches that I want to talk about. So I guess with some apologies <laughs> to Fawaz and Scott, um, quotes... There is something queer about comics. Whether one looks to the alternative mutant kinships of superhero comics, uh, the epitome of queer world-making, the ironic and socially negative narratives of independent comics, the epitome of queer anti-normativity, or the social stigma mm, that makes the medium marginal, juvenile, and outcast from proper art, the epitome of queer identity, comics are rife with the social and aesthetic cues commonly attached to queer life. So, okay. (laughs) I love that, actually. (laughs) It's No, I mean, I love, I really do like Scott and Fawaz. I think they're great. Um, 
I, I just am going to critique this a little bit. But here, what they're doing is really this essay is a critique of another queer scholar of another scholar's book. It is sort of aimed at other scholars to sort of argue that. Uh, comic studies people should consider the queer potential of comics and not just overlook it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and also, specifically, when I say the queer potential, what I mean is like not just literally like read books about gay people or read books about trans people, but like read for queerness or like see where queerness emerges, even in books that isn't that aren't necessarily literally explicitly LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think we maybe have talked about that on the show before too. Um, what I think this offers is some really concrete ways and examples of how to use queer theory. So for example, um, queer reading of the X-Men, right? That teases out how those characters can destabilize or critique or respond to more traditional superhero, cisgendered, heterosexual, like superhero subject characters, right? Um... Or even how, like, what we might consider to be pretty traditionally cishet superheroes have some pretty non-normative identity formation. So, like, what does a Batman comic tell us about masculinity in general? Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I wrote, uh, there's, uh, like, like, the X, I specifically just called out the fact that we talk about X-Men. We don't talk about yeah. superhero comics, like, at all on this podcast. But X-Men is very explicitly... Uh, read as queer by a lot yeah. of people so I just wanted mm-hmm. to shout out other podcasts if you're like down to talk about the queerness of X-Men um, there's I have a whole list here Cerebro X of Words Comic Book Queers Legacy which isn't specifically about X-Men but they talk about X-Men a lot and one mm-hmm. of the hosts is Evil Josh who edits uh for Katya <laughs> and Trixie Mattel if you didn't know oh, heck yes Evil Josh is like a big comic book guy <laughs> um, which is why uh has like comic book references only in the background like Trixie and Katya do not make comic book references <laughs> oh I um, love that so much and then there's also Jay and Miles explain the X-Men so these are all I'll mm-hmm. find links for them Um, but like if you're like down for it like queer readings of X-Men is like a fun time <laughs> it is and actually this is X-Men is one of the, like, in comic studies, which is a really, I want to note, like, as an academic field, comic studies is really small, and most comic studies writing is just, like, up for free because it's mostly just, like, comic fans. So it's, it's, in terms of, like, academia, I wouldn't say it's particularly, like, ivory-towered. I mean, it is, but not as much, I think, as some more, like, other denser fields. Mm -hmm. Um, You know. And, um... Fawaz and Scott actually like co-edited a book on like the queerness of X-Men cool. so like there's like a lot it's of crossover out it's out there <laughs> like this yeah everyone loves the queer X-Men um I mean if so you like idea- superheroes and you want it to be queer that's the place but if you want like a queer book I don't, and don't like superheroes I don't know if you <laughs> right yeah no the, the, you can do a queer reading of the X-Men that does not mean the X-Men was made for you you know <laughs> an important distinction but if you really if you're watching marvel movies and you're sad that they aren't kissing enough go ahead and go consume some x-men content that's what i'm saying yeah yeah um yeah love that okay and so the idea after all right is that we don't take for granted that these identity categories i'll say um are naturally just like sprung from the earth right um, so that includes how artists use their own identities in their work, right? Um, so 
uh, I'm going to use myself as an example, right? Like, I often say that, like, even if I'm not writing about an explicitly queer character, which I don't think I've ever done, but, you know, if I'm not, like, on the page being like, hey, this guy's queer, um, everything have, I like, do... But you draw, like, two men kissing. Okay, well, at my point... <laughs> Kathy, please. <laughs> my point is I, as an artist, can say very clearly, like, everything I do comes from a queer point of view, even if I'm yeah. not literally being like, here's a story about two gay people kissing or whatever. Yes. Um, I mean that's, so that's true. Yeah, I'd I'd say all my book, all my art is queer, whether or not it ha- contains even human beings. Exactly, exactly. So you can read queer narratives and things that aren't explicitly queer, right? Um, so how that, but also like what a particular comic or how a particular comic is made and where it is distributed and circulated can tell us about identity, right? So this is actually one of the things I'm looking at in my dissertation is. Um, self-published and like small press comics and zines made by trans people that circulate in the the sort of festival space like comic shows right Mm. Um, and looking at how those sort of like distribution networks uh, queer distribution networks are queer (laughs) right Mm -hmm. Um, so that's another way you could do this Um, I do personally quibble a little bit with some queer theory approaches to comics. The idea that comics are inherently queer, right? Because it's a marginal medium. Yeah. You would be surprised how many people take that for granted. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, taking that sort of thing for granted actually, like, falls into the trap that queer theory is trying to not do, which is that you can't take identity for granted. Um. And we talk about this a lot more in episode two with the high art, low culture stuff and like the idea that like the under like the the sort of like premise from like underground comics and alternative comics that like comics are, you know, not art and we're going to be like really buy into that and like lean into it and stuff. Like I think calling that queer gets into some weirdness. Um, But I think you can make that argument as long as you're, like, nuanced about it. But, like, you know, I just wanted to sort of call that out that, like, I'm not crazy about calling comics inherently queer as a medium. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it does come up totally. And it, it is, it is like, kind of, I'm like, it's just a media type. Books yeah. aren't gay. They can be gay. But they mm-hmm. aren't, like, a book isn't inherently <laughs> gay. Right, and, like, and it's just, like, to- it's, like. It's like, well, geez. <laughs> to be fair, they aren't. Fawaz and Scott are not saying that no. they're inherently queer. They're pointing out that they have a they have historically been marginalized in a way that appeals to queerness, which is true, I think, or like at least a fair argument to say. Um, I mean, that's I true too, right? Like, there's a, like like comics are punk, and comics can be because yeah. you you know it's a lot of self publishing, and yeah, it is yeah it appeals to a marginalized group, but it doesn't mean comics all comics. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that, like, Fawaz yeah. and Scott say that. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. have encountered it. So I want no, to be like, we mm, aren't let's... citing the people that we don't like. <laughs> yeah. So I just, well, I just want to make sure. Anyway, you know, anyway, um, I want to quote a little bit more from Fawaz, um, this time from one of my favorite essays of his, um, Strip to the Bone, Sequencing Queerness in the Comic Strip Work of Joe Brainard and David Wanarovich. Um, it's Goynarovich. It's Wanarovich, I believe. I list, list, I looked it up. Oh, really? Yeah. I've always said Wanarovich. Goynarovich. Interesting. Okay, Goynarovich. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, who? Uh, 
both of them are sort of like fine artists who make have made comic work although i do also want to point out that um goinarovich's comic seven miles a second which oof, please read if you haven't cool. um it, it it wasn't drawn by him it's based on his writing but he was collaborating with his artist friends um but still um he foas i'm quoting this i'm just okay i'll just quote it sorry go I'm for like, it I'm, like, really excited and, like, flapping my arms and not actually paying attention to my notes. Okay. <laughs> um, so Fawaz writes, I interpret the sequential character of the comic book, the comic strip medium. So he's talking about strips, not pages necessarily. Um, its formal organization into a series of panels arranged in space to denote the movement of time, right? So how, how panels laid out on a page represents time passing um as a serialized unfolding of indefinite open-ended possibilities comic strip sequences can accrue numerous potential starting points unfold in any visual or conceptual direction expand to any length and size and be perceived at multiple scales from the individual panel to the full comic strip to a full-length graphic novel or series um does that make sense? Anything I should clarify before we move on? Uh, it sounds good to me. Okay. Seen from this vantage point, the unpredictable procession of sequential panels that constitute any given comic strip is ripe for articulation with queerness as a description of the unpredictability of all forms of sexuality, but most notably those that attach to non-normative erotics and intimacies. So here he's saying that if you start from the idea that the literal way that panels are arranged on a page and can be read in multiple ways, um, if you take that as like a sign of multiple possibilities, right, and not just like foreclosing what that could mean, you can see how that literal representation on the page could represent a kind of queerness um, because it is also unpredictable and unstable and can be read in multiple different ways. Doesn't mean that every comic does this or that it is always used this way, but you could look at those formal qualities mm -hmm. to read them. Um, and so in other words, if we don't take for granted, yeah, I just said this, all right, yeah. Comics offer a uh, particular way to capture or at least gesture towards the big open mesh of queerness mm -hmm. in a formal way. Um, so what's kind of important here and hopefully clear from this example is that queer theory is a way of analyzing non-normativity, especially as it relates to gender and sexual orientation and identity. Um, and again, you can also use it as a way to read what is considered normative, right? And be like, why is this taken for granted as normative? Um, what queer theory is not really interested is, is in saying, quote, like, this is a queer comic. This is not a queer comic, right? Mm -hmm. It's a methodology, not something being used to prove something. Mm -hmm. So just sort of circling back to my point earlier. Um, and, um, so the, I, I, again, I only kind of brought like Fawaz cause he's sort of like the big name or like one of the big names, but like, that's cool. Yeah, and I didn't want us to be here for 10 years. Um, but I wanted to highlight so that we could see sort of like, okay, there's ways to use this methodology to look at like 
what characters doing, what narratives there are, literary themes, that kind of stuff, but also the formal qualities, also like who's making it, how it's like being distributed, who's reading it, what people who read it are doing with it, that kind of stuff too, um, in this methodology. So um, that being said, before I wrap up, I do want to briefly touch on the concept of reparative reading. Um, because it's something that I'm personally really into, and I think it's something that, like, a lot of people do without, like, realizing they're doing it, and maybe, like, would also be interested in learning more about it. Mm. Um, Eve Sedgwick, so we're going back to Sedgy, um, coined reparative reading in her essay, uh, Paranoid Reading and Reparative Reading, or You're So Paranoid You Probably Think This Essay Is About You great essay title um (laughs) this is from 2002 or 2003 i'm not 100 percent sure um but sedgwick again sort of like big name early queer theorist um fantastic person i love sedgwick a lot and i feel like if you're interested in queer theory she's a good person to start with um Mm -hmm. because her writing is like fun and punchy and not super like academically dense Mm. um so in this essay, Sedgwick critiques an, uh, a really popular academic model of reading that is sometimes called the, quote, hermeneutics of suspicion, which is basically when you approach reading critically to deconstruct what's really meant in a text. Um, I think that's a, th- a style of reading that a lot of us are taught in school, right? Like, we're going to read this and, like, pick apart what's happening here, right? Mm. Um. And what this often means is coming in with a predetermined idea that this text is going to tell you something, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. like, yeah. I'm going to read this and I'm going to see, like, what the author is saying about masculinity. And then I'm going to, like, go through and pick out all the stuff that could be about masculinity and analyze it. Um, and so she says, and I'm quoting here, what is illuminated by an understanding of paranoia is not how homosexuality works, but how homophobia and heterosexism works. In short, if one understands these oppressions to be systemic, how the world works. Now, to be super clear, she's not saying that paranoid readings are wrong. I know that, like, the word paranoid has sort of, like, a negative connotation. Mm. Um, but what she's using it here is she's using it actually in, like, the Freudian psychoanalytical sense. And I'm not going to get into all of that because, honestly, you don't need to know. It doesn't matter. Basically, <laughs> just, like, taking for granted the idea that there is a message in the text you have to decode. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what she means by paranoid. Um, and she's also not saying that, like, that uh homophobia and heterosexism aren't systemic or that like looking for them is wrong or anything like that um her argument is just and this is her what she's doing in this essay is critiquing queer theory at the time so like how academics are using queer theory and her argument is that like at this time queer theory is so over relying on the method of like paranoid reading as opposed to seeing it as just like one method of reading among many that um they're sort of missing the fact that uh paranoid reading by itself isn't enough to transform systemic injustice Mm, mm because it's like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. great you have picked apart the text and now we all under like we see we agree with your argument that the text is about heterosexism now what yeah right it sort of like ends there it doesn't go further Yep. Mm -hmm. um so it's like not bad to do it's just like it should be one thing among like many different approaches that you can use Um, So reparative reading in Sedgwick's formulation is a way of reading that allows you to be surprised 
by going in without the impulse to de- deconstruct or like pick apart for evidence of whatever it is that you think is going to be there, right? Um, which doesn't mean allowing that those uh, denying that those systems exist, but it means actually allowing yourself to seek pleasure in what you're reading. Mm. Which is um, something I think a lot of us do without realizing already, right? Like, especially, obviously, like, non-academics. I don't think, I don't think most people <laughs> go in to read something and are like, I'm going to tear this apart. Um, so, again, <laughs> very much, like, aimed at, like, other academics. But, like, I do know, I think especially with, like, there's a lot of, like, queer discourse and like i think a lot of us are much from like a a much younger age outside of the academy a lot of folks are like already kind of aware of these concepts right and like are actively looking for them um which is cool and good i'm not saying that's bad i'm just saying it's okay sometimes to turn that part of your brain off (laughs) um and um i actually wanted to uh, briefly bring up i think a lot about this uh carter monier's review of higu rose's uh book titty chop boob slash which i have i think talked about on the show a couple times one of my fave comics we talked about Um, it yeah we talked about it a long time ago yeah love that comic um monier writes about it quote Affirming realizations about trans bodies are relatively unusual, and trans people know we'll take them wherever we can find them. In reference to a page where Rose is talking about wanting a chest like a character from a Yaoi comic. Um, that's like the reparative impulse, right? You don't walk into a Yaoi comic going like, yes, this is going to be the thing that affirms my gender. I mean, maybe some of us do, but usually, usually right? Uh <laughs> I don't know what YMMV is. Oh, your mileage may vary. Oh, I've never heard of that <laughs> before. Sorry, I'm chronically online. That's all right. I am too. Mm-hmm. I just do have a different circle mm-hmm. of middle-aged people. <laughs> um, <laughs> And you're healthier for it. <laughs> and I actually, so this idea of like, you don't walk into a Yowie comic going, yes, this will affirm my gender. I was actually like, it's hard for me to drop Yowie comics here. So like Yowie comics, if you're like, what is, what's going on with that? It's a, a gay male uh, Japanese comics that usually are erotic. Um, and a lot of the times they're made by women, but they aren't exclusively made by women. Right. Um and I just uh, just recently I made a joke um, to my friends, so it's like not serious. But there was a time, like a few years ago, where like any sort of female fan of Yaoi or Boys Love comics were getting called out for fetishizing gay men. Mm-hmm. And I joked about how all those fans have now come out as transgender. And really, what was happening when they were fans of those comics is that they just found representations of masculinity that they identified more with than the prevalent media that was otherwise available to them. This is obviously not true. Not all fans sure. of Yaoi comics are transgender. But I mean, maybe it is true. Right. And I mean, I <laughs> I think again like this yaoi is maybe like a great example for this because you can do like a lot of different readings of it like you can look at like how it's problematic or like um how people in people who aren't japanese like work with it and like what might maybe is happening there with orientalism and racism and stuff like that um and all of that is also important and i'm not saying like yaoi is unproblematic and people who like yaoi are perfect and have never done anything wrong or whatever right but like you said like sometimes you walk into a comic and you aren't looking critically at it and you're like 
oh, ooh, maybe this is telling me something about gender that I wouldn't have expected otherwise, right? Um, <laughs> and I actually, I actually think that's really that's a really interesting thing. I've sort of opened my heart to. I used to be really harsh on like kind of like sexy lady drawings, mm-hmm. and I'm still like not a big fan. Sure, of them, sure. Um, because I found them sexist and oppressive. But I feel like sometimes I'd like. Maybe the people who are drawing these sexy ladies are actually kind of exploring gender for themselves, right? Too. Yeah, and that is a reparative <laughs> reading, right? Because the suspicious reading would be to come in and be like, "I'm going to take apart all the ways this drawing is sexist because I know it's sexist." Um, mm. But the reparative reading is to be like, "I'm just going to look at it and see what it tells me, and maybe it tells me that this artist is thinking about gender, right?" <laughs> like. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, at its most basic form, mm-hmm. what that's that's the rereading of the Matrix that we've all been doing. Yes. Right? Yeah. So again, like reparative reading is just a term for an academic strategy that, like, people I think do, regardless of whether they're academic or not. You don't have to call it reparative reading, but if that is like something that you're interested in, um, like thinking about like different ways of reading, I do think this is like a good essay for that, especially if you're like. Uh, you want to be more like not. I would say Sedgwick is a good representation of like not being being critical while not being cynical, um, which can be mm, hard. At least cool. for like me, right? It's very easy to sort of fall into the trap of being cynical. Um, oh, you just you just positive and just seeing what's going on in the world. Yeah, I'm just a little guy. Um, <laughs> you're just a little guy. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I just wanted to, and I think that's useful also for comics, basically, is my point, is like some, you know, going into a comic and being like, what is in here, as opposed to going into a comic and being like, I already know what I'm looking for from this. Um, Yeah, and that's, you know, be curious about the world. Oh, I'm getting sappy. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much, Remus. Mm -hmm. So it's time for conclusions. What did we learn? What were our goals? And what are, do we want our takeaways to be? Yeah, okay. So to kind of like really messily sum up, queer theory is a way of reading that focuses mostly on destabilizing or critiquing categories of identity that are usually taken for granted. Um, It can tell us a lot about how gender and sexual identities are created and then enforced, and it can tell us a lot about how queer people negotiate, challenge, uh, assimilate to, affirm with, whatever, those forces individually and collectively. Um, a queer reading of a comic does not require that comic to be, like, explicitly LGBTQ, um, because in queer theory we can take queer to reform more expansively to how identities are defined as normative or non-normative. Um, in comics, it can help us understand not only, like, themes or narratives of queerness where they emerge, right, but also things like formal elements, how page layout, paneling, mark making can reflect queerness. It can also help us look at um, how the material conditions of comics, so like the labor inputs put into making them, how they're distributed, who's reading them, how people that are reading them are reacting to them, can also tell us about queerness or be a potentially sort of like queer method. Yeah, and I sort of had a final question for you. So how does the queer theory relate to sort of that subtext versus textual conversation? So that meaning... Like it has a queer sub subtext. It's probably something that you've heard of, mm-hmm. where it's a story that could that is a could potentially be about queerness if you read into it, versus textual, where it is specifically about a queer 
relationship? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think like, because like I said, uh, like when you, the point of when, okay, I don't want to say like the point of queer theory is that like queer theory is like a, a thing that has its own feelings, because it's not, it's just like words on a paper that people use. Um, but like, I think like a lot of the tools that queer theory offers have more to are like less interested in whether like, no, that's not fair. I think like, what you would look at in that case is like okay what does it mean for it to be subtextual versus subtextual like what does that tell us that in this instance the queerness is present but implicit or like has to be teased out by an audience or like the audience sort of has generated the queerness for this text you know what i mean um it's almost it's it's almost a completely separate thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah i think like subtext versus text would be more about like a media studies sort of point of view right whereas like i think if you're approaching and you can do both at the same time obviously lots of people do but i think if you are like strictly thinking about it in terms of like um queer theory tools then it's more like okay it's less important like is it text or subtext and more like okay what does that tell us about like if it's subtext what does that Mm. mean for how it's read if it's text how does that affect how it's read right i have one more question um how does queer theory square with the author then oh great question love it um (laughs) i mean i I think there's not a concrete answer here because i think it depends a lot on the person who's using queer theory because like a lot of people kind of just like you know subscribe to the idea of the death of the author right so that like you know once something's out in the world the author's intentions are not super important Mm -hmm. and then but then you also have people that are really interested in like who the author is and how that impacts like what the author's intentions how that impacts um any particular reading of it and i i think there's ways to sort of like hold those two things together like i think you can to go back to x-men because it's a really easy example um stan lee not a queer guy i would say right um probably wasn't intending at least for early x-men you know obviously i know like contemporary x-men writers go hog wild but like early x-men right probably not they probably weren't setting out to be like these are queer books <laughs> for queer people, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you can still read them and be like, okay, yeah, this wasn't the intention, but there's all this non-normative stuff happening that like resonates with or points to queerness and we can sort of use that as a framework to talk about it. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, a- X-Men was always referring to the civil rights era. Exactly, like, yeah. Like, so, for sure. <laughs> you know, and but, like, it has, you know, it's a good example because, like, it really has become, I think, such a touchstone and, like, for both fans and academics as, like, a very queer superhero narrative. I actually am looking at one of the most famous gay covers for X-Men comic. It's the Wolverine cover, um, Wolverine 6, where it's, like, a completely nude um, uh, Nightcrawler in the front in the foreground and then there's a wolverine logan sitting at a table with the his a beer bottle right where his crotch is that's what what year was this one i want to look at it i think it was like 2000s something it was like six dollars online but it's like the most because there's a lot of gay artists oh yes this cover oh yeah i mean i have it on my wall it is coveted by me it's a great cover very much um, <laughs> so sometimes 
you have a gay artist who is drawing right. it, ra- drawing Nightcrawler's butt right on the front. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another thing, right? With uh, like, and you know, this is more true. I think of like more of like um, mainstream comics where like these characters are sort of moving through a bunch of different hands. Yeah. Sometimes you get a gay artist or a gay writer or like a queer artist or a queer writer and they come in and they're like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to make this queer. Yeah, and that's and, a very. And there are, like, yeah. X-Men does have a lot of queer writers. Exactly. And yeah, then that's a, there. that's another thing to consider is like, okay, how do you, in that, in that context, then how does the fact that like a queer person came in and did this, then impact the readings of it, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So yeah, lots of different things. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um. And so, well, I don't know. Not to just jump into it. Thank you so much. I think that's really helpful to think about queer theory and comic books and like how it's not necessarily just the story, right? It's a way of perceiving it. And also, Mm -hmm. I just reminded myself of something. It is also something that death of the author is kind of changing, right? I feel like when queer theory and feminist readings and that kind of conversation was happening and being more founded it was like death of the author absolute (laughs) like i feel like that was the position um and i feel like it is definitely much more of a conversation to be like no like we need to talk about harvey weinstein we need to talk about these people we cannot pretend like they aren't they did not exist and they did not harm people like not even just like people who are still alive like um joseph conrad and um and I think actually that's interesting because I do feel like a lot of feminist theory and queer theory was markedly different from the rest of the academy because it was even very early on, like there was an interest in um, looking at authors, right? And like looking at- But it wasn't popular at all. No, but but queer theory and feminist theory weren't super like popular. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, when, in the 90s? I mean, feminist theory was more, like, firmly established, but still, like, you know, we're talking about, like, when you talk about, like, the start of a discipline, there's not that many people doing it, you know? Like, it's not, like, super... But I, I, I would say that, that that has shifted a lot, even in our lifetimes. Oh, for sure, for sure. Is, like, actually being, like, no, like, when we say we want r kelly arrested (laughs) right oh yeah i mean i think there's definitely a different like i'm not talking about comic books anymore but no well because i my first thought was um another sedgwick essay from 1991 called jane austen and the masturbating girl and in that essay she talks about jane austen as a queer figure and like how you know what i mean and talks about Mm -hmm. like dickinson as a queer figure and like how all these like kind of like queer women authors could be like read through this lens basically right um so yeah def- i so mean def- yeah fair. yeah <laughs> i mean but like that isn't inherent in queer theory no t- totally totally and there's a lot that is more interested in what's on the page than who made it um right. which is often a critique right because then someone comes along and is like hey so you wrote a lot about like our crumb but like that guy sucked <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean like we do have to look at the fact that that guy sucked like <laughs> we can't pretend that that yeah and and i think that's always been the harsh sort of like like a- academics trying to pretend like it doesn't matter yeah for sure for sure 
but it matters. Yeah. And I think um, that's definitely true, especially with, like, generational divides between, like, younger folks that are, like, really interested in, like, who makes stuff and, like, that how that impacts what it is and, like, some older folks who aren't, you know? I mean, hopefully... There's yeah. a, there's everyone and everything, but I think the popular kind of conversation hopefully has shifted, and I um, that I think is so. a good thing. Yeah, I think so. I agree. Um, so, uh, no, no, if you want to write us a letter, normally we would have time for letters to the editor. We don't have one this uh month, but if you want to send us letters, uh, please do drawing a dialogue at gmail dot com. Just the name of the podcast at gmail dot com. Um, you can also tweet at us. Um, I look at the Twitter pretty regularly, so don't worry mm-hmm. about it. I'll t- I'll I'll see it. Um, and then I want to thank Downtown Boys for their song "Wave of History." It's off their f- album "Full Communism." You can buy it off their Bandcamp. Um, I have a art comic book art education website called comicarted.com. I'm starting to mm-hmm. book uh spring and summer uh comic book workshops for kids if that's something that you might be interested in if you have a girl scout troop or a library or a school group or anything like that um mm-hmm. i'm do- virtual visits are nice are much cheaper than having me travel um <laughs> so i'm i'm so happy that virtual visits are like uh you know uh people are doing them yeah um and i think that's great not that i need to sit here and advertise myself but it is something that i love doing cuz mm-hmm. this is a comic and education podcast yes. so i did want to mention it invite kathy to do events i love it it's so <laughs> fun um okay, and then um, no well, you, can, can, you go for I it can it's your turn. yes okay it's my turn <laughs> um so you can also view all the citations for this podcast episode on drawingadialogue.com that is where all the episodes live with their citations hosted by comicarted.com which is Kathy's very good comic arts education website thank you like Kathy just said you can email us at drawingadialogue.com or you can tweet at us at draw a dialogue um you can um, follow you me. can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com yep that's what I meant <clears throat> uh you can follow me on twitter at uh, y- uh, remus maurice i have to double check i never you're so close to remembering your own twitter handle yes there it is uh yeah i only changed yeah. it like a year ago um <laughs> remus maurice <laughs> which is r-e-m-u-s-m-a-u-r-i-c-e um, and you can follow me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. That's Twitter and Instagram and basically everything else. I don't know why you would want to follow me on Venmo, but I guess you could. <laughs> Who <laughs> wouldn't want to follow it. you on Venmo? Um, see, at the one time of year, I reluctantly give someone Venmo for pizza. Um, and then uh, what are you reading, Remus? Ooh, okay. Um, not much because I was moving, but uh, I I'm torn between. I actually wanna. I think I wanna. I there's a poem that I read recently. Um, ooh, uh, that has really sort of stuck with me. Um, I'm tempted to read it, but it's a little long, so I don't know if that's a good idea. Uh, but it's called Failure in Infinitives by Bernadette Mayer. Um, we'll link it. We'll link it. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really beautiful poem that's just sort of been stuck in my head since I read it. So 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And um, what are you reading, Kathy? Um, well, I have two books happening right now. Uh, the first one is She Who Became the Sun Ooh. by Shelley Parker Chan. Um, it is a like period um, fiction in Mongolia. Um, and like it's about like war and there's like magic and stuff, which is cool. But it's also like super queer and not in a queer theory way in like a they have gay sex kind of way which is super (laughs) rad um that can also be in a queer theory way (laughs) (laughs) um and then um i also just started uh devil house by john darneal i've been excited to read his book um this is uh the third novel from john darneal is the singer songwriter from um the mountain goats but he's also an author um mm-hmm. and pretty well established author um that's doing good stuff um he doesn't even mention the mountain goats in his bio on, in the book that's how oh, wow. yeah he's going hard for it um but so far it's been really really good and um it's just really nice when an artist that you like in one format starts making artwork in another format and it also rules it's yeah, nice. I was I was just talking to my partner Lyle, who I moved in re- with recently. We were having a conversation about how cool it is when like an artist sort of like works in one medium and then like discovers another, or, like moves into another, and it's like so nice. I don't know. I think that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I I think the identity the identity of an artist is sort of an identity, and it's not. I think it's a little bit separate. We like to have it really tied to. Uh, material yeah but i actually yeah. think it's pretty separate from it if you're a creative person you're a creative person yeah no for sure for sure um and hopefully that's everyone in the world because everyone deserves yes. to be creative everyone. and i want to thank you for listening to drawing a dialogue uh my name is kathy g johnson and i'm remus jackson fair whoa this is the old version <laughs> solidarity forever <laughs> <laughs>